0: Welcome to the podcast of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I'm Larry Kessler. Today is May 25th, 2023, and we're going to hear from Adam Fulton Johnson, who's an NEH fellow with the consortium this year. Adam, would you please tell us about your project? Thanks for inviting me to share a little bit of my work. My book manuscript, which is entitled Information Control and Indigenous Politics of Documentation in the American Southwest, is a history of anthropological research in the Southwestern United States. It is a history of ethnographic entanglement, specifically intersecting epistemological systems. So systems of knowledge. I examined the relationship between anthropologists and Pueblo and Diné, which is also known as Navajo communities in the American Southwest around 1880 to about 1940. And I analyzed the generation control and cross-cultural transmission of knowledge from one source to another. It will be no surprise to anyone that in 2023, anthropology, if we reflect on it, might have a fraught history. Indeed, the discipline is constantly scrutinizing its past practices. Ethnographic exchanges are structured by colonialism and so inherently power differentiated. White or Western anthropologists exert pressure on indigenous informants to share cultural information and Once that information is revealed, anthropologists control the afterlife of such information. To use Hans George Reinberger's term, they redimensionalize it. They redimensionalize culture and they put it into data on paper. So I began this project interested in how the qualitative data making practices of ethnographers interpreted and attempted to materialize indigenous knowledge systems, to write them down. I wanted to know When anthropologists write down cultural information, what gets lost in the mix? And on the other side of the coin, how do indigenous informants make choices about what sacred or significant information they provide to inquiring anthropologists? To put these abstract questions in context, I looked to the American West. I'm from New Mexico, and I I grew up around many Puebloan and Diné peoples. I should clarify right now that I'm not native. I'm an Anglo, which is a term for a white person in the Southwest. Santa Fe, where I'm from, has a particular reverence for indigenous cultures, even if that reverence can be problematic and stereotypical in many manifestations. But nonetheless, I learned about these distinctive indigenous groups in elementary school and beyond. Fast forward to graduate school, I thought it best to apply my research interests to my own home region. Growing up, you learn about the cultural differences between different indigenous communities, often from anthropologically informed sources. But I wondered how differences in cultural practices and their epistemological systems, their knowledge systems, between Pueblos and Navajos might have played into the ethnographic encounters of the 19th century. Both communities became central to the project of disciplinary formation for American anthropology. But the strategies for ethnographic accumulation adopted by anthropologists differed markedly in these different cultural contexts. I would say that my major research questions circle around what I call the hydraulics of information exchange. How does cultural information get siphoned from one group? How does it get materialized? Uh, What gets left out? What gets mistranslated and so on? To get at these big, sometimes ineffable issues, I focus on relationships between anthropologists and indigenous informants, particularly issues of discretion and disclosure around information exchange. Despite the founding disciplinary maxim that modern anthropology is rooted in participant observation, something anyone who takes an introductory anthropology class in college learns. I instead reveal many instances where anthropologists in the field turned away from participant observation in the early 20th century. And they turned toward tactics that isolated individual indigenous informants to provide in-depth cultural information on sensitive issues about which an Anglo or any outsider, for that matter, could not openly ask. That is not to say that anthropologists in the late 19th and early 20th centuries didn't try larger community studies or active social methods such as participant observation. It just didn't work very well among Pueblo and Navajo communities. My research shows that even in early encounters with anthropologists, Pueblo and Navajo communities in the region came to understand ethnographic documentation as a form of knowledge sharing that did not fit with their own systems of knowledge management. In both groups, although for very different reasons, social restrictions on the free flow of knowledge complicated ethnographers attempts to capture it as data in the face of indigenous restrictions on access to ceremonies determined anthropologists developed anti-social strategies for capturing quote-unquote secret ethnographic data they used tactics such as surreptitious documentation deceitful lines of inquiry and hosting informants out of sight from their home communities, for instance, bringing them to a hotel or a nearby ranch. Throughout the book, I present case studies of Navajo and Pueblo responses respectively to emerging ethnographic documentary methods. In the Navajo case, I examine the social structure of Navajo healing, which is characterized by powerful, knowledgeable medicine singers that control the distribution of knowledge to their apprentices. Individual Navajo medicine singers had authority and discretion to whom they passed on their knowledge, which include elaborate sand painting designs that are made and destroyed throughout the course of a healing ceremonial. In the 1880s and 1890s, trainees included at least one Anglo-anthropologist, a man named Washington Matthews, who worked with the respected medicine singer's tall chanter and laughing singer. So, around the turn of the century, we see that anthropology among Navajos could be pursued through an elite group of medicine, men, provided they trusted the ethnographer. Navajo healing epistemology dictated that the knower had discretion over the knowledge they could impart. In other words, Navajo knowledge, at least in the medicine context, is sort of top-down. By contrast, in a case study of knowledge maintenance practices in Pueblo communities, Pueblos live in villages um, and have historically done so, Pueblo of course means village in Spanish, I I show that the decentralization of knowledge in disparate fraternal societies presented problems for ethnographic documentation. Pueblo politics of information control restricted knowledge to initiated society members and they guarded specialist knowledge about, for instance, curing or ceremonials. They guarded this knowledge from outsiders. Pueblo fraternal societies shared information about anthropologists' persistent probing into sensitive matters, and they developed and circulated among themselves new tactics of resistance to documentation. Ethnographers soon found they were effectively shut out of public inquiry, much less participant observation. Their studies of indigenous social structure stymied by dissimulating, yet still fairly friendly, at least on the outside, townspeople. As the century turned, anthropologists again changed their documentary tactics to account for difficulties of access, particularly within Pueblo communities. And I explore these in later chapters of the book. Instead of accepting Pueblo attitudes about the importance of knowledge stewardship, in which certain people were chosen to care for sacred knowledge while others were rightfully ignorant of it, anthropologists exploited local customs of information control. Figuring out how knowledge flowed or didn't between indigenous community members, ethnographers such as Elsie Clues Parsons, who's fairly well known, and Esther Goldfrank, who is not so well known, isolated vulnerable community members and coerced information from informants. They massaged their vanities. They offered bribes. They took them to hotel rooms. They leveraged American military and economic power in the service of exhaustive documentation. I argue that anthropologist-informant relationships became characterized by the clandestine exchange of private information and material goods, a counter-narrative to the typical story of anthropology's maturation into participant observation and social preservation. A final chapter uh, returns to Diné, or Navajo ethnography, where the authority of individual knowledge keepers and their autonomous relationships with non-Navajos provides a contrast with the secretive relationships that often characterize Pueblo ethnography. In this chapter, uh, which I'm still working on, I present the famed Diné medicine singer and weaver Hastin Claw, who's a nadle or a two-spirit person, and who as such received training in both the traditional men's practice of medicine singing and the traditional women's practice of weaving. Claw demonstrated a remarkable skill at applying medicine singings sacred sand painting motifs, he essentially translated the sand paintings into weavings. And in doing so, Claw materialized and he stabilized sacred designs, which was certainly a controversial act to traditionalists among Navajo medicine singers, but one that was sanctioned by the authority of the accomplished singer hosting Claw, who had discretion over his own accumulated knowledge. Anthropologists such as Clyde Kluckhun and Gladys Reichard looked to Clause, what they call liberalization of sacred knowledge as a template for the extraction of information on topics such as witchcraft and magic, about which Navajo people were typically reluctant to discuss. Although the epistemological conventions of Diné thought made individual relationships with knowledge stewards more accessible to anthropologists, I show that the legacy of information extraction became a social burden for Navajo communities, which in the post-war period established new codes of access for anthropologists. So that was an overview of the project, and the contribution as I see it is that my work historicizes a long lineage of appropriation and divestment of Indigenous intellectual property in the name of human science. When sacred knowledge is extracted from an indigenous community by a social scientist, who is it that becomes the steward of that knowledge? The extraction and redimensionalization of sacred knowledge still happens. In 2015, Penguin Books republished the Acoma Pueblo origin story, causing the people of Acoma Pueblo to contest the publisher's right to publish a story that is not meant to be widely shared outside of their community. This is but a recent example of c- cultural paternalism that ignores indigenous agency. The disjunction between local and universal knowledge systems spotlights and ethical oversight in data accumulation and dissemination in the human sciences. The presumption that human science has the quote, right to know secrets and to publish them without regard to community consensus or to the integrity of sacred situated knowledge systems. It's also important to flag a connection to present concerns about surveillance programs, data mining, and self-determination in a world defined by the asymmetric and often unconsented accumulation of information. Just as ethnographers retooled their surveillance while trying to maintain good standing in an indigenous community, social media companies' changes to something as simple as a user agreement merely shift the contours of surveillance, not the act of surveillance itself. It's a murky cycle that we see both then and now of trust-building and then trust-breaking that, as my work shows, can have lasting detrimental social effects at the local level, such as the erosion of mutual trust within close-knit communities. Everyone wants a broad audience for their work, of course, but I hope ultimately my book will link histories of the Native American West and Indigenous Studies on the one hand and scholars working in STS and Media Studies on the other. I like to think my research also recovers historical anxieties and research practices that speak to pressing debates about data privacy and the use and abuse of personal information accumulation in our digital age. And I believe my work insists on the continued significance of local knowledge cultivation, arguing that knowledge stewardship is a pressing social justice issue, given current concerns of data imperialism and corporate expansion. For the Consortium Fellowship, I will be doing research in archives in Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., and the New York area. The American Philosophical Society has resources in the history of anthropology in the United States, which I've already dipped into. Great, great resources there. For summer 2023, I hope to examine several major collections at the APS. I also visit Columbia uh, University's collections relating to L.C. Clues Parsons in New York City. Princeton University is home to the collected papers of the Pueblo anthropologist Alfonso Ortiz, who died in 1997. Ortiz was uh, a Tewa citizen uh, from Oqueoringa or San Juan Pueblo. His uh, papers will be a fascinating case study to add to my research on the hydraulics of knowledge exchange. Ortiz has been criticized in the present day for his revelation of Pueblo secrets. Yet I hope to present a more detailed picture of the conditions and obligations surrounding indigenous knowledge exchange from Ortiz's point of view as a Pueblo man, as a social scientist, and as a person of prestige in his community. For my book, I will also be diving into research for one additional chapter on Navajo Chantway medicine practice and training in the early 20th century. Several consortium member institutions hold files related to this research. Yale has the Adi-Dodge papers, and Jeffrey O'Hara, cylinder records, and Columbia has Pliny Goddard's Indian notebooks. Goddard worked in conjunction with the Anglo scholar of the Navajo, Washington Matthews, about whom I've already written extensively. Goddard's notebooks and his attempts to document Apache people, and the Apache peoples comprise the Navajo, will give this new chapter contrast and structure surrounding the politics and strategies of ethnographic documentation. My work draws on fields of science studies, indigenous studies, and communication and media studies. The systematic transformation of culture into data risks altering sanctified knowledge traditions, a risk which, as I mentioned, persists today, not just for indigenous peoples, but for everyone. I also underscore the importance of taking care of knowledge traditions dearly held in the face of data extraction, presenting historical cases of people who regulated knowledge to uh, to best serve their local communities. My book strives to situate and denaturalize Western structures of thought, historicizing the distinctive forms of indigenous practices, such as caretaking relations, place naming, or knowledge stewardship, that shape human relations, relationships with others, including non-humans. I look towards modes of knowledge stewardship that emphasize effective human connections in our increasingly data-dominated world. I want to thank the consortium for the opportunity to work on this project. I'm an independent scholar running a nonprofit in my hometown of Santa Fe, and while I love what I do, it can be difficult to find time to dedicate to research. So in closing, I want to underscore that I thank the consortium for support. Thank you, Adam, for telling us about this really fascinating project. We're looking forward to hearing more about your work as it develops. For more information on Adam's work and more resources related to the history of science, technology, and medicine, please visit our website at www. This has been a podcast from the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine.